Hi, I'm Mary Agnes Carey of Kaiser Health News. Along with our partners at The Lancet, I'd like to welcome you to an analysis of what the 2016 election means for health care. Starting in January, Republicans will control the White House and both chambers of Congress. After promising to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, President-elect Donald Trump has said he'd now like to keep some elements of the law. Republicans who have voted for years to repeal the law now have their chance to enact a replacement. Medicare and Medicaid might also see major changes under a GOP-controlled White House and Congress. Joining me here at the Kaiser Health News Studios in Washington are Julie Rovner, a KHN senior correspondent, and Margot Sanger-Katz, a domestic correspondent at the New York Times, where she covers health care for the upshot. Joining us from The Lancet's editorial offices in London is Richard Lane, web editor for The Lancet. Thanks, everyone, for joining me. Appreciate it. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Julie, I want to start with you. Can you talk a little bit about what Donald Trump's presidency and Republican control of Congress mean for ACA repeal? Both of them say that repeal is a top priority, but how would they actually go about it? And would Senate Republicans really go along with all of this? Well, this is the classic case of the dog who catches the car. Um, you know, then they go, now what do we do with it? You know, the Republicans have been uh, voting to repeal all or parts of the law pretty, pretty much since it passed. Um, and now they've discovered, lo and behold, some parts of the law are actually kind of popular. So if they're going to repeal it, they're going to actually have to have something to replace it with. Well, for all these repeal votes, they don't really have a set program to replace it with. On the campaign trail, Donald Trump, only really described what he would replace it with as something terrific. So this is, you know, they're, they're, they're basically backed into a corner. They have to do it. They have to repeal the law, and they have to figure out what to replace it with, and that's what's going to play out over the next year. Margo, how do you see this shaking out? I think extremely hard to predict. Um, I don't have a good sense of whether there's a lot of consensus among Republicans about what they want to do. There's sort of a whole menu of different things that they could do. They could just repeal the law and say, you know, we'll fix it later. But that has a lot of political risk because then you end up with a lot of disruption, with lots of people potentially losing their insurance, with insurance companies deciding that they don't want to provide insurance in this uncertain environment. And and then they sort of own the political fallout uh, in the way that the Democrats for the last few years have really owned the political challenges of the ACA's problems. They could, uh, you know, come together and say, we're going to repeal the Affordable Care Act and we have a new program that we're going to replace it with. But, you know, it's not so easy to develop these health reform proposals, as we learned, you know, the last time around. And it's not clear that all Republicans are necessarily going to agree on one plan. You know, it's they have majorities in both houses of Congress, but they don't have a really big majority in the Senate. They really just have enough that, if, you know, all but one vote, they can uh, squeak something through. So, you know, w the, you know, the sort of second option is, like, could they come together with some really big detailed proposal and do it all at once? And then I think there's sort of a third option, which, uh, you know, Donald Trump alluded to on Friday, which is, well, maybe we don't repeal and replace it. We just amend the Affordable Care Act. You know, maybe they could take a couple of particularly unpopular provisions or make a couple of changes that they've really wanted to do for a long time and kind of keep most of what's there and make these little tweaks and be able to say, OK, well, we, we've, we've done the thing that we told our voters we would do by changing the law. 
You know, it's it's worth remembering, you know, everybody thinks the Affordable Care Act started when President Obama was inaugurated. Actually, the Affordable Care Act started about a year and a half before that. Um, the committees in Congress were laying the groundwork. They were talking with stakeholders, with industry people. There were all these negotiations. There was a white paper that, that the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee put out, The what was it, the, a day or two after the election. So all of the groundwork had been laid, and it still took Congress a year and a half to get the Affordable Care Act through. So if Republicans, you know, think that they can repeal and replace this in 100 days, I think that's highly unlikely. And in my memory, the Library of Congress, the big summit on health care, Julie right. may have covered that as well. Yeah, this has definitely been kicking around for a while. Uh, Richard Lane, I want to go to you. What do people outside of the U.S. think of the re election results? And from your perspective at the Lancet, what do you think all this means for the future of the ACA? Yeah, that's one, that's one great question. We're still very much uh, in shock, actually, as I'm sure a lot of America is too, because the result obviously wasn't predicted and we weren't expecting it. Um, so we're getting over the shock of, of, of last Tuesday, and it's hard to believe it's only a week, just about a week ago. Um, um, but also there's a sense that, well, what does it mean? And I guess there's a certain sense of bewilderment, because from what we're hearing coming, coming from the President-elect Trump camp, as you've already alluded to, uh, seems to be already changing quite quickly. I mean, he clearly said some very strong contentious thing when he was on the campaign trail. But we're getting a sense that, as you said, oh, maybe he's reconsidering or maybe that meeting with Barack Obama last Thursday is already having a bit, a bit of an effect. In terms of health policy, I mean, Yes, we're very concerned at the Lancet because, of course, broadly speaking, we very much supported the progressive agenda under the Barack Obama or two Barack Obama, uh, Obama administrations. We also know from you guys and from other sources how difficult the Affordable Care Act, what a difficult life it had in terms of implementation, not just from the from when the websites all crashed when they tried to launch the insurance markets, but the problems with the costs, the lack of people entering the insurance markets, which has meant that some insurers have pulled out or prices have gone through the roof. So we certainly are clear that the, that the Affordable Care Act, which clearly had very good progressive intentions, has been implemented pretty badly, and we're obviously very concerned about that. But we're sort of getting the impression that what Trump might be saying now is what Hillary Clinton might have been saying if she'd become president, which is, yeah, I know the Affordable Care Act is having problems, but my God, I'm going to fix it. I'm pretty sure Hillary Clinton was saying, I'm going to fix the Affordable Care Act, wasn't she? So it would seem that we're almost, as a sort of philosophical point of view, almost there's a bit of convergence going on. You know, that's a, an excellent point, and I've been thinking of it myself. In some ways, if they actually want to fix what's wrong with the Affordable Care Act, they're more likely to do it uh, with a Republican president and a Republican Congress rather than a Democratic president and a Republican Congress, where clearly they never would have gone along with it. Now they feel some sense of ownership of what they're going to do. And I've actually been saying for a while that I think they could end up sort of accidentally backing into fixing it because they may not be able to think of anything else to do instead. Yes, we wonder that too, whether there might actually be a bit of a policy vacuum being created as a result of, of the shock election result and whether potentially that could be ironically or paradoxically provide an opportunity for, for better progress in healthcare. And one thing we're particularly aware of here, as I'm, sh I'm sure you're aware that, you know, from the Lancet's perspective, you know, we believe that health uh, is, is, a, is a human right, not an, employ an employment privilege or benefit. And I know it's more than just an employment benefit in the United States, you have your Medicare and your Medicare and Medicaid programs, obviously. But in terms of the principle of trying to prevent individual people, particularly people on low incomes, from having catastrophic health expenses, I'm sure Donald Trump and the Republican Party, the last thing they're going to want 
once they get into power is for suddenly people who were beginning to be reached by the Affordable Care Act, suddenly for, for whatever reason not having insurance coverage, or if you're going to have people who have lost their jobs, which has resulted in, you know, in those rust state people voting for, um, for Trump last week in the election, suddenly finding themselves even more crippled because there isn't a plan in place, that could really backfire, surely, on, on, on Trump and, 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 and his new team. In some ways, this reflects real divisions inside the Republican Party. You know, Donald Trump and we've been talking about this throughout the election, is sort of not the standard bearer for the party. He is an idiosyncratic candidate who is more of a populist, who had throughout the campaign expressed sort of more support for social welfare programs, including the health care programs. And, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to know how uh, he and the Republicans in Congress, who in general have been much less enthusiastic about providing health insurance to low-income Americans, uh, will, will reach some kind of compromise, you know. Trump has said repeatedly throughout the campaign that he was very concerned about health care access for the poor, that he thought it was important that there was a safety net. He said, you know, people shouldn't be dying in the streets. At one time he said, um, you know, if, even if I lose the election for having this position, it will have been worth it because I think it's important. But we do see in some of the kind of more formal campaign documents that they put out and most recently on their transition website that the kinds of policies that they're describing in print are, are rather different than the things that he says on the campaign trail and seem much more in line with what Republicans in Congress are interested in, which is a sort of more stripped down, more free market kind of program that probably provides a little bit less of a safety net. So, uh, it's, I mean, I, I think this is going to be one of the most interesting things to watch is how does Trump and other members of his party sort of find some common ground? You know, we've talked so much about the divisions in in the Democratic Party between sort of the, the single-payer wing, people who want, you know, Medicare for all, and the, the, the sort of the Affordable Care Act wing, if you will, who want to, to try and, and keep this sort of more, a little bit less heavy government. Well, we have the same thing in the Republican Party. You have the... There are some, there are, well, I guess what we used to call moderate Republicans who believe in, in social welfare programs and believe in health care programs but don't necessarily want the government fully involved in health care. And then there are the market-based people who want no government in health care. And the problem with this at this point in time is that you now have, as we've been discussing, 20 million people who are getting insurance through this law. It's not, it's not theoretical anymore. It's not just an argument about what role should the government play in health care um, because if you just turned the switch and, and made it go away, you would have 20 million people who would be very angry. Well, there's a lot of political peril in that too, right? I mean, I don't want to talk about elections, but the midterm's only about 22 months away. <laughs> do you really want to get, Republicans, I think, do not want to get blamed for leaving upwards of 20 million or more high and dry without coverage. Many of them in Republican states. The politics are very tricky, though, because if you if you look at the surveys of Republican voters, wanting to repeal the Affordable Care Act is, one, is probably the most unifying issue kind of across the waterfront of um, policy issues. Republican voters in general really do not like the Affordable Care Act. I don't know that they're kind of in the weeds of what is, what is the Affordable Care Act, what's not, what does repeal really mean, but I think that they expect their elected representatives to do something about this. On the other hand, I do think that any kind of repeal of the Affordable Care Act, even one that has sort of the, a great consensus replacement package, is going to create some disruption and is going to mean that there are many millions of people who either lose health insurance or have to change their health insurance arrangements. And we saw with the implementation of the Affordable Care Act that even a very small minority of Americans being disrupted by these policy changes can really make a lot of noise and can make a lot of political trouble. So let's go a little bit to the mechanics, kind of the ground game, Julia, how this will happen. We know Republicans don't have 60 votes. That's what you need in the Senate to stop a filibuster. 
So they have to use something called budget reconciliation, where 51 votes, you can make some changes. Take us through what sort of changes might happen and what other things in the law will remain they can't touch through this well, process. There are a number of opportunities, actually. Um, uh, President Trump, once he is sworn in, could actually do a lot um, on his own to, to so undermine the, the executive law. There, order. By executive order, right. um, you know the the the, the essential benefits. Um, actually, as someone pointed out, those are regulations. I mean, they're in the law, but what they are is a regulation. He could order that change. He could drop this very contentious lawsuit um, and and basically get rid of the cost sharing subsidies that help people under two and a half times poverty um, pay their deductibles and co-payments. Um, by law, the insurers would have to continue to provide that, but the government couldn't pay the insurers back. That would that would kind of blow up. Yeah, that would kind of blow a hole in the exchanges. The 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 general. I mean, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen, but there is sort of a working consensus that he's probably not going to do things that would seriously undermine the insurance. Um, the insurers who are now offering coverage, because if they're really going to delay this, if they're going to repeal it um, and say, but it's going to go away on a date certain, giving themselves time to come up with a replace, you don't really want to blow up the insurance coverage that people have now. So assuming that he's not going to do that, then they move on to this idea of, of using this budget process called reconciliation, um, where you don't, where you are not subject to a filibuster in the Senate, but not everything can be done. They can't repeal the entire law through budget reconciliation. They can only repeal things that have an immediate impact on the federal budget, either, either adding or subtracting. Um, so there are a lot of the insurance regulations uh, that affect the private market are not subject to being repealed under budget reconciliation. So they could basically, what they could do is they could undermine the law to the point where it wouldn't work. Um, but in order to replace it, they're going to have to have 60 votes. Marco, you wrote about this today in the Times about if some parts are repealed and some remain that sort of take us through your story and talk about some of the impacts of some of these things coming in and out of the law. Yeah, so we saw uh, Mr. Trump last week say that he would, there are some parts of the Affordable Care Act that he really likes and he wisely picked the things that are the most popular among Americans because they are the things that make the law feel fair. And the main thing that he talked about is that the law prevents insurance companies from shutting out people who have pre-existing health conditions. So, you know, if you have asthma, if you had uh, had cancer in the past, if you'd had even uh, allergies, before the Affordable Care Act, if you went to an insurance company and said, sell me insurance, they could say, no, we don't want to give insurance to someone who had allergies. We'd rather give health insurance to someone who had a completely clean bill of health. And so the law said, no, you have to offer insurance to everyone. But then it included all these other provisions that were designed to make sure that the market wouldn't just become a market for really sick people. Um, it created a lot of incentives for healthier people to also buy health insurance because if you have a health insurance market where sick people can get coverage when they need it, those people have a really big incentive to sign up and healthy people have a really big incentive to just wait until they get sick and then they can buy insurance. And so what you end up with is a very, very expensive insurance pool. Insurance is not affordable for anyone and it's especially not affordable for the sort of good Samaritan healthy people that are like trying to be responsible and get in early. So. You know, if you take away all of the kind of unpleasant parts of the Affordable Care Act that help bring healthy people into the market, then this sort of market-based structure where you can't have discrimination doesn't work very well. And, you know, I don't know that Donald Trump has really thought about the kind of nuts and bolts of how it works, but, uh, you know, that is definitely something that's going to have to be thought about. And if we go through this budget process that Julie described, the budget process can get rid of some of those incentives because they're financial. It can say, 
we're going to stop giving people money to help them pay for their insurance premiums, and we're going to stop fining people who fail to buy insurance. But it will be much harder for them to use this process to take away those rules that allow everyone to buy insurance who wants it. And so you could really see a very dysfunctional market resulting from that mixture of policies. I think it's, it's just a reminder that, you know, the Affordable Care Act, as it's written, has a lot of problems and flaws, but the Democrats who wrote it did think pretty carefully about how you kind of layered a bunch of policies together to try to create the most stability. And any replacement that's going to have to come next is going to have to wrestle with some of those same questions. We can't just have the most popular, the most wonderful parts, and none of the parts that are unpleasant. Surely and if we could have done that, that's what would have been done the first time. It's worth pointing out that Mitt Romney had the same position in 2012, but this is sort of part of the Republican position on health care is that we, we're, we're going to try to keep the things that are popular um, and find out and, you know, and find ways to fix the parts that are unpopular, except that they haven't actually been able to do that yet. Well, will Republicans make peace with the individual mandate? I mean, they've criticized, they've were for it before, historically. It's a Republican idea. It's a Republican idea, right? And then it's been criticized as part of the Affordable Care Act. But as Margo points out, it's one of those essential things. You need to balance the risk pool. So how do they, how do they make their way on this? That's one of the things that they're going to have to fight about. I suspect they won't make peace with the individual mandate. But the problem with that is that uh, that you that you have then if you if you don't require people to have insurance, then your choices are um, blow up the market, as Margot was talking about, because only sick people will have insurance, or put sick people in a separate pool, um, which they call high risk pools, which has been done before and which hasn't worked because they're incredibly expensive. And what we ended up with were high risk pools that ran out of money. Florida's high risk pool was closed, I think, since 1991. I mean, it was just, they only had a, a limited amount of money. And, and even when people could get in, they often weren't covered for the thing that got them in. So if you had cancer, you couldn't get insurance, you got into the high risk pool, it wouldn't cover your cancer. So there have been all kinds of problems with high-risk pools. They could end up being as expensive, if not more expensive, than the subsidies that are being given out now. So I don't think they're going to like the individual mandate, but you know, a lot of people have thought for a long time about ways to, to keep the insurance market working without it, and I haven't seen one yet. Well, one idea that I've heard discussed is sort of, it's sort of like a weaker version of the individual mandate. So it doesn't force you to buy insurance, but it basically says as long as you have health insurance and continue to renew your policy. So if you buy health insurance one year and then you buy it another year, maybe you change jobs, you have to change plans. But as long as you continue to be insured, then if you get sick, the insurance company in the future can't say, I don't want you as a customer. But if you go uninsured for some period of time, if you decide, I'm healthy or I don't have enough, the extra money this year, and you just take a break from having insurance, then when you come back in, you will be shut out. And so that's another way of creating sort of a financial incentive for people to keep insurance all the time. You know, that obviously will close a lot more people out of the insurance market than the current system, but I think it will be a way to create some incentive for people to have insurance even when they're healthy. And that actually has had, that has been the law in the employer market since 1996. That was it was on the individual market. That it, 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 the the HIPAA law actually says that's the, the it was people think of it as privacy, but it actually stands for health insurance portability. Um, uh, that if you have if you go from insurer to insurer and you don't have a break in coverage, you can not only continue to be covered without pre-existing condition exclusions, but you can also get into the individual market at the end. Um, but that was that was not did not take into account people who were self-employed and buying their own insurance, which is what the ACA did.
Well, I know. I was just curious, and, and thank you, thank you for the detail. Uh, it was really just expressing a concern from afar, and, and I realise, of course, outside America, we we think differently over here in Europe, but we are very, very concerned and interested in in, in your health policy situation. But if you got away from the individual mandate, which I realise is, is a real possibility, are we seriously expecting that people will, particularly who people who are feeling the pinch financially, are going to voluntarily go and get themselves insured when they're feeling healthy. I, I, I just, the, the obvious concern is that you're, it's just going to reverse some of the progress that has been made in getting people covered. Surely we're going to end up with a lot of people uninsured if that individual mandate disappears because people just think, I'm healthy and by the way, I'm not very well off, I can't afford to buy insurance. Well, one of the things that we see now with the Affordable Care Act is that I don't think that the mandate has turned out to be as powerful an incentive as people thought it would. What it looks like is that instead, the federal subsidies that help people buy insurance. So if you're kind of low or middle income, you can get some federal dollars that will make your insurance premium you know, cheaper for you and represent a smaller percentage of your income. It seems like that's mostly where the incentive is. And you know, if you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, most people want to have health insurance. They don't want to be exposed to these big risks of either having a huge financial hit or just not being able to access care if they or someone in their family gets sick. So you know, I think that one of the things that we're learning is that if you make insurance affordable for people, a lot of them are going to want to buy it. And there are some people on the margin, clearly, who that little bit of a kind of punishment of if you don't buy, you're going to have to pay this fine, that creates an incentive too. But it is a structure where there are kind of positive and negative incentives that are part of the Affordable Care Act. And you know, if we start to take those away, then it, then I think it is much less clear who will continue to buy insurance. And plus, you know, we talk so much about these young, healthy people who think that they're invulnerable and they don't want to buy insurance. Well, all their parents want them to buy insurance. So, I mean, and I, <laughs> I, hear, I hear from a lot of those parents. It's like, really, I wish, you know, my kid had, had you know, good, comprehensive, but not too expensive policy that I can buy for said kid. I mean, there is a lot of that. So I, I think Margot's right. The individual mandate has not been as strong as certainly the insurers wish that it had been. Um, but I think, you know, if, if they could come up with a way to make insurance uh, less expensive, you know, more power to them. And I think that's the argument that Republicans tend to make, is that they say the real problem is not that we haven't forced people to buy insurance effectively enough. It's that we haven't made insurance affordable enough that everyone wants to come into the system. And so, you know, I think that's something that we can look forward to in their policies, our ideas that are designed to make insurance cheaper. I don't think that's so easy, because the reason why health insurance is so expensive in the United States is not because the insurance companies uh, have to cover a lot of benefits, although they do, and it's not because they're greedy and they're, uh, you know, sort of hoarding a lot of profits because they're not. It's really because the underlying cost of health care in the United States is just so expensive. We pay a lot of money to doctors and hospitals and drug companies, and we give people a lot of very intensive high-tech treatments. And so that means that it just is expensive to provide health insurance. Sure. But what else will Congress be focusing on next year? The ACA obviously is going to take a lot of steam. Are we going to hear about drug prices? We heard about those on the campaign, rising drug prices. There's some other sort of must-pass bills that Congress has to do? That's right. There are a number of things that actually Congress has to do next year regardless because they're laws that expire. One of them, uh, there's, there's user fees that the drug industry um, and the medical device industry pay for extra people at the Food and Drug Administration so that they can speed up the approval of, of new drugs and devices. Um, that comes up for renewal next year. That could be a vehicle if they wanted to do something on drug prices, although I don't think that's as likely as, as people might have been thinking because I think they're just going to take up too much bandwidth with the Affordable Care Act. The Children's Health Insurance Program, which was supposed to sort of fade away under the Affordable Care Act, 
hasn't for a variety of reasons, um, but when they renewed that uh, two years ago, it was only for two years. So that has to be dealt with, whether or not that's going to be it's continued. It's traditionally had bipartisan support. Right, and that was created with bipartisan support. It has had bipartisan support. It will be interesting to see what, you know, Republican president, Republican Congress thinks of that. It's covered uh, more than 8 million kids. Um, lot, it's, it's a very popular program, and the states like it. Um, and then going back to sort of the Affordable Care Act, there were a number of not very popular taxes that got delayed, uh, again, though, only for two years. So they have to decide again uh, things like the, the tax on medical device makers, things that were actually paid for the Affordable Care Act, and this very controversial tax on very generous health plans, um, the, the, the so-called Cadillac tax. They have to decide whether or not that's going to happen um, because if it's going to, it was delayed till, to, till 2020, but employers would need a long lead time to adjust if that's going to happen. And we see there's quite a lot of interest among Republicans in Congress in doing uh, some reform of the FDA, which, uh, you know, reviews and approves drugs and devices. They, they passed some legislation last year, and, and, you know, I think it's reasonable to think that some version of that bill will come back. Sure. Richard Lane, I'm going to send the last question to you. Obviously, there are some very important health care issues that might get the short end of the stick next year on Capitol Hill, healthcare inequities, global health, the health impacts of climate change. What do you think happens if Congress doesn't engage on these issues? Well, I think this is probably as big an issue for the Lancet as, as the domestic issues are that we've just been discussing uh, in the future of the Affordable Care Act, because one, one major concern and one great unknown uh, is you know, we've already had a bit of movement, as we've just discussed, about the Affordable Care Act, possibly, we'll see. But uh, when it comes to the, the broader issue, the international arena, global health leadership, this is something very close to the Lancet's heart, obviously. And this is something, again, that we would have been quite optimistic um, if Hillary Clinton had prevailed, given, given her role in the international health arena already. So the big question mark for us is, what does this mean for not just USA as a donor of global health initiatives through agencies, obviously, like USAID, CDC, and, and other programs and NGOs that America's involved in. What's going to happen to that money? And don't forget, when Barack, just in the last session, when Barack Obama was, well, he still is in charge, but just a, a year or so ago, when he was battling to get funding through, for increased funding through, because of Zika. And look at the difficulties um, Barack Obama had there. Uh, even getting fund he didn't get the funding uh, that, that was initially asked for and that's when he was that was when uh, you know he had the influence to do that so there are some real concerns and again we don't know the answers yet but on the global arena not just to do with foreign policy but more, more broadly to how that will impact on on global health that is a concern to us climate change you just mentioned i mean the la i don't know if but um, Donald Trump has, has watered down his view on this in the past 48 hours. But the last time I saw his views on climate change, he thought it was a conspiracy invented by China. I mean, I mean, it would be laughable if it wasn't so serious. I mean, the scientific evidence of the effects of climate change are just so well known and are inextricably in linked with health, albeit in a complex manner. So, sure, um, there are huge question marks that remain. And, and understandably, I can see why... Initially, President-elect Trump is, is focusing on the domestic issues because America has genuine concerns about those. But at the same time, and this is where, again, I suppose possibly one could be optimistic. You could argue there could be certainly the potential to influence policy in this area. So that's something that we'll be looking at very, very closely. Though I suspect it's not going to be a priority come January the 20th. Well, you've given us all lots to talk about in the coming year. I'd like to thank Julie Rovner of Kaiser Health News. 
Margot Singer-Katz of the New York Times, and Richard Lane of The Lancet. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.